Hey, this is David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast, The Incurable Reader, which I was thinking about this last time I said it. Do you guys think that, like, is that a negative or a positive? I didn't. I think it's just charming, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, right. it's yeah. neither. Okay. Well, that was a very... Um, that was a very picture of Dorian Gray answer. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> Neither. It's charming. And charm it just is. It's yeah. aesthetic. <laughs> did you guys also notice that David, Tim, did you notice that David said, this is David Kern instead I did. of I am mixing David it up. Kern? Really oh, no. mixing it up. Definitely did that on purpose. Sometimes you just start to talk and then you, you, know, you open your mouth, you do this enough times and you have a routine and yet you open your mouth and it doesn't come out the way you expected or your, your brain is programmed. Chaos. No, I Good just, thing we just flowed. We're professionals. Should, should, we, we, yeah. should, we, just, yeah. should we just start over? Yeah. Back to the okay. time. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, this is a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be answering your questions about the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And we have several of those to to get to. And some of them probably will take some some time. So we probably are going to go through fewer of them, I suppose is what I'm trying to get at here because of how long some of them might take. Is that unfair to do to people, you think? Or no, okay? you've right. got to make a gut call. You have to. Good. All right. I, I, uh, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we're on the same page here on that. Um, before we get into that, though, I need to tell you about this episode's sponsor. You guys know about this. We've mentioned this on the show before, but Tim, Heidi, you are going to be at a little conference in Atlanta, Georgia. That's right. In October. That's right. The company behind that conference is, of course, the Cersei Institute, and they are sponsoring this episode. So if you would like to join people like Heidi and Tim and Andrew Kern and Matt Bianco and Greg Wilbur and Katarina Hamilton. That's my sister. And this is the first time I've ever publicly read her name as Katarina Hamilton because she got married like three weeks ago. So I'm using her new last name. That's good. That's very exciting. Katarina Hamilton's a great name. Jameson and Katarina Hamilton sounds powerful. Uh, Buck Holler is going to be there. Uh, Thomas Fickley is going to be there. Kristen Rudd is going to be there. And John Hodges. And together they are all going to contemplate how to elevate the desires of your children to hopes that don't disappoint and to joys that don't leave a bitter taste. So the registration does include lunch and free audio recordings of all the conference sessions. And again, the dates are October 20th and the 21st. Um, What are you all talking? Heidi, can you give us one title that you're going to be... I mean, maybe not the official title, but the topic that you're going to be talking about at this conference? I am going to be talking about how classical education can lead our children to God. Tim, what about you? Shakespeare's vision of leadership. Mm. They sent me some titles here. So is, is Heidi, yours is called The Divine Ascent. Mm-hmm. And Correct. Then, so Tim's yours is called Kings and Queens, Tyrants and Traitors, Shakespeare and Leadership. Yep, that's nice. right. So, those are good, good titles. Title. Here's two more. Um, searching for the Perfect Man, The Tyrannizing Image of the Ideal Type, and The Socratic Way, Ancient Practices for Contemporary Education. So those are four titles, just just four of the, you know, select, a select, you know. Those sound Spicy. Yeah, a, a spicy selection of titles. But if you would like to hear all of them or find out, you know, discover just how spicy they actually are, you can sign up today by heading over to searcyinstitute.org slash events. And uh, I mean, it's got a close reads tie-in. So thanks to them for sponsoring. And if you go to this conference, you get to hang out with Heidi and Tim a little bit and hear their uh, their wisdom. So thanks to Cersei also for just sponsoring this episode. Um, okay, let's, let's answer some questions. Speaking of hearing from, from Tim and 
and Heidi. Uh, we're going to hear from Tim in this first one. Joy asks a question that is directed at you, Tim. And she says, Tim said at the beginning that he doesn't think this is a great book or a novel. I can't remember the phrasing exactly. I'd be curious to hear if his thoughts on this changed over the course of the reading or not, and his perspective on what makes a great book. So two parts there, Tim. What makes a great book? And does has your perspective on this book changed the more we've talked about it and the, and the more we've read it? I think halfway through, I would have I would have said, meh, it's kind of a mediocre book. I think by the end, I think it's a good book. I don't think it's a great book. By great, okay, can I, can I clarify? Yeah. Like by great book here, do you mean capital G, capital B? Like we're talking, you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, ultimate yeah. rankings. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should kind of recalibrate my scores. I used to teach at a great books college. There's like a clear kind of definition of what makes, I shouldn't say there's a clear definition. The bar for being a great book is really high. So maybe I set the bar too high. I think A Picture of Dorian Gray is definitely worthy of reading. I think it is especially worthy of reading for young people, Mm -hmm. um, like teenagers, maybe college years. I just don't know that it goes down the pantheon of a great book. I don't know that I would put it in. But do you think that's the question she's asking? Like, because... There's there's a technical definition of a great book, right? A capital G, capital B, a great book is a book that without which our culture would not exist. Shakespeare's a great example of this, Homer, right? But I, I'm wondering if what she's asking is just like, is this not a very good book? A great novel, maybe. It's, yeah, I guess yeah. that's why I'm asking. Like what I guess right. it kind of comes down to what Tim meant at the beginning, because she's kind of asking for clarification See, on I, I think like my high bar. I want to keep my high bar because we've read some of the great books on mm-hmm. this podcast. Mm-hmm. Jane Austen, um, Homer, Dostoevsky, Homer. And I, I kind of like that, like upper crust to highest strata. Is it like right next to that? I don't think so. Is it a, is it a really good book? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Heidi, do you do you want to respond to this one too? Yeah, I think if it's the if it's if we're asking, is it technically a great book in the technical sense of the term? No, it's not. And if we're asking, is it a great novel? I think it's debatable, and I might put it as maybe slightly less than a great novel because I think that the writing is a little bit overwrought. I think that there's some um, questions or some gaps in the book that that are important, that matter a lot. So even if the question is, is it a great novel? I think I would say no, but I think it's still worth reading and worth discussing and and belongs on the list of influential novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and sometimes you read something because of the cultural influence that it's had, even if you can say like, it outside of that, it has some limitations. I mean, I'm not saying this one does. There's plenty to talk about here, but sometimes that's worth digging into. Like, why does something have long legs? Like why, and when, if it's influenced other people, then it's worth looking at a little bit too. Do we need... I think part of what we're trying to do here on this show is answer that last bit that she puts to Tim there where she says, like, what makes a great book? I think that's kind of the thing that we're after here is like always constantly digging into that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that the three of us probably all say that... would say that we have a general sense of what a capital G, capital B great book is, you know, Homer, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, things like that, Austin. 
but we're kind of on a quest to rediscover and redefine mm. and have our imaginations and our whatever part of your brain works in definitions like recalibrated and stretched and um, challenged. And so that, you know, we're one of the things we're doing here on the show is reading books that have some kind of import and trying to ask that question. Is this a great book? Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, so that's, well that's, that's part of the fun of the, the show. We're not trying to just say part of what we're trying to do is say, okay, here's great books that everyone should read. Let's, let's try to discuss why. And sometimes we're trying to read books that have some sort of import and we're trying to say, where does it belong in the canon? And that's also a fun exercise. So, um, can I, can I I'm going to swerve for just a second and we don't need to chase this too far. Do you guys think that Pilgrim's Progress is a great book, like capital G, capital B? Oh, man. A stretching <laughs> silence, which is death on a podcast. We're never <laughs> supposed to do that. Um, yeah, too bad we don't. Too bad. You know, stall, should we start? Stall. Should we start posting videos of our of our recordings, like other podcasts do? Every once in a while, we probably should. This would be like it, one of those not breakouts now we could because do. I'm in a Stricken closet. Look on my face yeah. when you asked that question. I wasn't ready, Tim. We could have a breakout for Tim asking that question and us just staring at each other. But Tim, <laughs> yeah, he's in a closet. I just see a bunch of are those belts. Tim, they have belts hanging from the back of door to the closet. Yeah, I think no. Yeah. You think Pilgrim's Progress? No. Yeah. I do. And I could you so. give, I know this is totally on the spot. Could you give an answer as to why? Um, I think that it is an influential book. I think it's right. an important book. I think that it, uh, there's all of the good things about it. Um, it's spiritually formative book to an entire generation, multiple right. generations. Right. But I don't think it left. I don't think that our culture would be different if we didn't have it. And that's the definition. Oh, really? 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 Gosh. Okay. It is the great Protestant epic. And so I might be wrong about that. I think it's debatable, but I think no. But you could easily persuade me, yes, by giving me stories or telling me why it is. And maybe I'd be like, oh, good point. But I think that we would still have the West without Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. David. I'd I'd have to think more about the question of influence um, and as far of course, as but, how but, I would but defi- you would like, say, of course, uh, you, you would like more time to think about it, but based on what you know now. So I would say, I guess what I'm saying is, do I, as far as Heidi's definition or argument there, I have to think about that. But I would say from, I don't, I think from a craft perspective, it's not there either. Like, I think it's, totally agree. it's me, it, it can be read in such a way that it's meaningful to, to people who are on a spirit, in a devotional sense. sort of sense. Yeah. But I don't think from a literary perspective, it has great i don't think it holds up in the way that other books do but which is not to say that it doesn't have its purpose that it can't be used effectively in that devotional sense but could would you look at other devotional books and say they are great books you know great great books i mean some of them probably would there I mean, maybe like if we're looking at church fathers or something like that um i don't know it just depends but on we're we're talking specifically about like, like imaginative yeah. narratives yeah uh, I would say no, as far as that goes, it's not, um, but it has its place and its purpose. And it's, it, I think it was, it's meaningful to a lot of people in the, in that particular way. And so why do but, you ask that Tim in the, in the midst of the Dorian Gray Q and a, because I think that Dorian Gray shared something with um, Pilgrim's progress. I agree with you guys. I don't think Pilgrim's progress belongs but it's, I think actually, Heidi, the only way it would get into the canon is because of its influence. 
I think it's tremendously cultural shaping in like a way that maybe maybe even Brave New World is culture shaping, even though I think Brave New World is a bad book, right? Right. Um, I think both Pilgrim's Progress and A Picture of Dorian Gray are morality tales. That's overly simplifying it, right? But they are there to teach, to instruct. There's a moral at the end. No matter what, like, no matter what the author of A Picture of Dorian Gray says, he is out to teach us something. Come on. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, same thing with, same thing with Pilgrim's Progress. I think part of the reason that I think neither one are great is because of the genre. I almost think, and I don't know if this is fair, I almost think that the genre pro- stops them from being considered a great book because they're so allegorical and pedagogical. Hmm. And moralistic. Huh. Yeah. Do you, it's a yeah, compelling we, we, argument. We'd have to think about, we should have to, we'd have to think through what other books would fall in that category and see if any other. Right, because there's but, maybe Scarlet exceptions. Letter. Yeah, is the Scarlet, do you think the Scarlet Letter, like, is kind of close enough to a pedagogical genre that it disqualifies itself? You know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, in relation to this, this very book, Dorian Gray, because Bethany was asking me what I, what I thought of it. And I, we were talking about, will it be read in 200 years? Yeah. So then I got to thinking, well, I made the comparison to the Scarlet Letter because we talked about that earlier this year and I commented during those episodes about how the book, I think that book is better to talk about than it is to read. And then I started thinking about how in some ways for me, that's the same with Dorian Gray. It's In some ways, it's more interesting to talk about than to read. We might have varying degrees of... You guys would probably disagree with that. But um, then I started thinking will either of these books be read in 200 years? Mm. And then I started thinking is, would people still read Hawthorne at all if it weren't for high school English classes? Which got me then thinking about, man, you're going down a hole. Does that, does that matter in the conversation of the great books? Because in some ways, the job of academia, I'm just going to put this in like stark caricature terms, part of the job of academia when properly used functioning functioning is to preserve books that's right so that's why the canon becomes a little bit like if you're if you're if you're if you're if you have a a poorly functioning world of academia you protect and preserve the wrong things and so then the canon becomes messy Mm -hmm. and so i so so i'm not saying that we're preserving the wrong things by reading hawthorne then I said, but then can you, if something can only be, is only likely to be read in the halls of a classroom, is there, is, does that have any influence on whether or not it's truly a great book? Um, so it's, Good that's, a kind of, that's a kind of accidental, that would be sort of um, an accident. Do the accidents of history, i.e. the preservation of certain books that may not be of great merit, contribute to a being contribute to a book being considered great and i think unfortunately the sad answer is yep probably okay but then i started thinking i think homer shakespeare austin and a handful of other people would be read and celebrated and remembered even if we didn't have schools because they were for centuries or before we had schools in the way we think of them now so 
it might be that but lots wouldn't, right? Like I'm teaching. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's, I'm, yeah. I'm teaching Boethius in my medievals class right now on the constellation of philosophy. That book's almost lost, except in classrooms. It's almost lost, except in classical education. Right, right. And that is one of the without a, I mean, like undefended. That's one of the most influential books that's ever been written in the history of the world. And there's only a handful of people continuing to read it, which speaks less about the book and more about the state of our culture. If we have the whole, the idea of the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, right? Which, um, that wisdom flees when it is not preserved. Mm -hmm. And that, so I, I don't know that I would buy the argument that we can judge a book's greatness by whether it's still being read in a dying culture. It's like, to me, I think the yeah. book is more important than the culture at this point. Like the book is this, more important than the environment in which it is remembered or forgotten. I have a sort of fanciful theory that I can't in any way prove, but that there's probably like, if our culture forgets about Boethius, the constellation of philosophy, it will return. Agreed. One day. I totally agree with that. Um, like it could be, it could be, you know, like, I mean, and there's going to be probably books it is theoretically possible that there's books written now that will in 200 years be read that aren't being read now by very many people. Uh, I mean, maybe we don't have the culture to really create them, but Bach was, you know, Bach was for a while. He, people stopped listening to him, at least some of his work. Right. So, um, Maybe yeah, that's because a bad we example, believe in but, providence, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, let's let's talk about um, some questions here from Matthew Huff, who it was hey, so man. great to meet at the, hey, the event hey, back in, in August. Yeah, Tim, Tim's very. Well, why are you saying high like that? It's like a surreptitious high or uh, a kind of side side high. Like I don't want just, to. I don't want to interrupt the question. You don't want everybody. To, okay. All right. You don't want yeah. everyone to know you're saying hello to be like right. privy to the conversation. All right. Just well, Matt. Hey, Matt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Matt. Okay, so Matt Matt Huff says, does Lord Henry hold his own at the literary part of clever devil archetypes? Or does he lack some essential quality that keeps him from joining the company of Mephistopheles, Iago, and Milton's Satan, for example? Is he distinct from these other characters in being a man without a chest? His presence as a flat character full of quips, aphorisms, and empty rhetoric was mentioned on the podcast. So is the consensus of our hosts that he is not as great as other silver-tongued villains? If so, would the novel profit from making his character tragic rather than villainous? Heidi, what do you think? Hmm. I like this question a lot. Yeah. I like this question a lot because I've been thinking about this, uh, especially in relation to reading that hideous strength over on the um, on Close Reads HQ for our subscribers. Uh, because Lewis so vehemently and I think convincingly argues that the great loss of modernity is any kind of meaningful uh, is the man without a chest, as as Matthew brings up, the man who are that we in modernity have lost uh, any kind of like spirited response to the world in which we want to meaningfully create something in um, that we believe in, right? And and so I think that Lord Henry is absolutely a man without a chest. And to me, my question is, and I'm not going to take a stand necessarily. My question is, is that not, could it be that that's actually more villainous than to be somebody who at least believes in something and fights for it? And that same reason that when you read Harry Potter, we hate Umbridge way more than we hate Voldemort, because at least there's some measure of, of belief in Voldemort. 
Um, which mm. isn't to say it's virtuous, but to be completely void of the heart of to be someone who stands on nothing. Is that more villainous or less villainous than someone who has malicious intent? I don't know, but I agree with Matt, or at least the question he's posing that because Lord Henry lacks that malevolence, he is not on par with an Iago or a Mephistopheles or Milton Satan who has malevolent intent and Lord Henry doesn't. Um, and is he more or less creepy because he's devoid of that? Maybe that's up to the reader. Hmm. I think that Tim, <laughs> David, yeah. David? <laughs> well, you know, we had that silence, so I was going to fill it. We spoke over um, each other. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, um, I wonder if the reason that Henry is the way he is, is because he is a modern like a exactly early like he, he yes he no. doesn't have that villainy what was the word you just used villainy malevolence. was malevolence um in part because i don't know that he believes in enough to be like actually has enough belief in anything to be truly malevolent right um and so i think maybe that might be part of what wild is going for um like he is empty he's vapid and can you be truly malevolent can you be truly villainous if you are vapid and if he was if that wasn't purposeful by wild then i think that's just the case that if you are too vapid you can't be truly malevolent um at least in, in fiction i don't want to i don't want to get into that in like real life but tim what do you think you were you were sitting there thoughtfully it looking off into of the this. distance which is 6 feet inches from your face <laughs> it made me think of this one of the my favorite quotes from any movie ever came from the big lebowski have you guys seen the big lebowski yes. there's a, yeah of course there's a, the dude we're americans tim the dude and the big i don't want to be i don't want to no. be presumptuous <laughs> The dude and Walter are leaving the bowling alley and they're accosted by nihilists. We are nihilists. We believe yeah. in nothing. And Walter says, nihilist? I mean, say what you will about the tenets of National Socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> it's such a great line. It's yep. such sure a great is. line. And I kind of feel the same way. I mean, this is another way of saying what you guys are saying, that this is Henry. Like, it's not really an ethos. It's just a dance that he puts together i think that the i i this remains my biggest complaint about the book is that i'm not really afraid of henry like i i, I you know what i mean like if henry was more sophisticated like matt huffs gives some suggestions about iago or the devil in um paradise lost i think if Lord Henry was a little bit more robust and we were afraid of what was going to happen to Dorian Gray, then I think this could really climb into like the Pantheon. But Dorian just, he doesn't, I don't know, he doesn't really succumb to Henry. I guess he does. He more just, for me, He's he has nothing in him. It's kind of funny because Henry doesn't really have a philosophy. And I see Dorian Gray is just having kind of he has no stance. Neither one of them really have a stance. So it's kind of like a strange twindom, I guess. 
Yeah. I agree with that. that I think was that's probably not, one, of, one of my yeah. complaints about the book too. I just think that's tricky though, because I do think Wilde's doing that on purpose. I think his whole point is we have a world in which, well, and, and we've progressed beyond that. Progressed is, I don't know if that's the right word. We've moved culturally beyond the problems that are being raised by the book, which the book seems to be raising this problem of we don't have anything but aesthetics. Mm. And we don't have principle. We have aesthetics. And and Lord Henry seems to represent a world that lacks principle, but has aesthetics. It has beautiful brocade and whatever kind of food they're eating. And he's always, Oscar Wilde's always describing the rooms that they're in, right? And there's this uh, this aesthetic life that seems to be displaced, covering up the fact that there's a meaningless, uh, there's nothing beyond that. And it used to be thought that beauty pointed to truth and now we don't have truth. And so we just have beauty. And is that enough? And so I think that Lord Henry is terrifying. The fact that you can that he represents aesthetics devoid of meaning is horrifying. I think that's super scary. In some ways, scarier than Iago to me, because at least to the with Iago, I had something to 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 defend myself against, some kind of wickedness, something to like I can I can reject on a basis of goodness. And I don't know if there is that. Like the vapidity so, is more scary to me than outright malevolence. Well, I think what maybe Tim and I are getting at is that in his personality, he's got these ideas that he throws out there, but in his personality, Wilde doesn't quite earn the respect that Dorian right. shows to him. Like the, no, in the drama, like in the characterization, yeah. there's not enough there to be like, oh yeah, Dorian obviously would be compelled to follow this guy. Yeah. And I get the argument. I understand what you guys are saying. I just think it's really creepy. I think Lord Henry's super creepy, especially because he's so charming and there's nothing beyond it. Like that, just that void gives me the heebie-jeebies. So I think he's a compelling villain is what I'm he's saying, a, but I don't yeah, think t- he has the malevolence. Villain. I don't think he has the malevolence uh, to Matt, to Matt's point. I don't think he has the malevolence of an Iago or Milton Satan or any of those guys. Um, I think he's a modern He's a modern Mephistopheles. And I think he kind of succeeds in that. Oscar Wilde does, which maybe you disagree with that. I just think he does. We can leave it after this if we want to. But for me, the thing that he's lacking is magnetism. I think all the other characters that Mm -hmm. Matt mentioned, they're magnetic personalities. Like you find yourself rooting for Iago against Othello, despite the fact that you know that Iago is demonic. And I think the same thing could be said of the other two characters that I mentioned. Anyway, that's that's the thing that's missing, I think, is I don't care about Lord Henry. I don't find him the least bit magnetic. He's just sort of like a couch surfer with, you know, champagne in his hand. So what? So what? Okay, okay, yeah. we got to move on. We got a question here from Lauren, which in some ways is tied into this. And she says, I'm wrapping up reading Dorian Gray with my students in an intro to fiction course. So I've been thinking about this novel more than is healthy. Uh, Bless y'all's podcast has really helped me lesson plan. So thank you. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, I was surprised by how some of my students showed pity for Dorian as a character. Are we supposed to pity him? 
My students were wise to point to Dorian's lonely childhood, his lack of real deep friendships, and the section in chapter 11 where his fate is tied to the corruption of his ancestors. This is where he looks on the portraits of his past relatives and ruminates about their damning and secret lifestyles. So is Dorian fated to fall, and should we be sad for him because of this? Moreover, one student notes how Dorian's friendship with Lord Henry seems legit because Lord Henry seems to be the only character that really talks to Dorian, not just seeing him as a beautiful thing to admire like Basil does. Um, I'm going to skip a little the parenthetical here. Basically, is Wilde interested in creating pitiful, in the original sense, characters or characters that we are supposed to condemn outright? I did get a bunch of, ah, poor Basil, when Basil has to ride by himself to the theater to see Sybil and the BFF Dorian and Lord Henry rode together. Heidi, do you want to take this one first? Sure. My first response to that is I can't be trusted to speak for what Wilde intends for us to feel because I have, I can't, I I don't know because um, Oscar Wilde makes a claim and we talked about this ad nauseum, so we don't need to go back to this, but he makes a claim in the preface of what we're supposed to take from this book. And I take the total opposite from that, from the book than what Oscar Wilde tells us we're supposed to take from the book. And so I don't know how we're supposed to feel about Dorian, um, whether we're supposed to feel sorry for him or not. Um, especially since I also think I don't feel the way about Basil that I'm supposed to feel or Basil that I'm supposed to feel. I actually think Basil is one of those who causes Dorian's downfall and ever, and lots of other people see him as very sympathetic. So I'm, I, I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to feel about Dorian. Um, but he does give us a compelling psychological reason for why Dorian is the way he is with his sad childhood. And he doesn't do that for any other character. He doesn't do it for Basil and he doesn't do it for Lord Henry. And so I think we are absolutely supposed to have a Freudian perspective um, on, on Dorian when we, when we see him as a product of his, uh, his impulses. um, And we see him as, a as a narcissist with a with this psychological background because it's lifted pretty like the story that we're given about Dorian is lifted pretty much from Freud. Right. Um and so I think we are supposed to see him from Freudian light, whether that's supposed to arouse pity or fear in like a true cathartic sense, as as Aristotelian tragedy would tell us. I think so, yes. I don't think we have to, but I think we're supposed to. What do you think, Tim? That's my guess. The question is, should we, are we intended to have more pity or censure? Or more censure? I think we're supposed to have more pity. I think it makes it murky. It's hard to know. A hundred years ago, it's hard to know, right? Yeah, a hundred years ago. That's what I'm saying. I get everything wrong, (laughs) according to what I'm supposed to think about this book. Yeah. Well, I think that he makes it murky by writing the prologue, and in a way, I think there's what he intended the book to be, and then what he was kind of forced to. I think he. I think in writing the prologue, he softens what he's supposed, what he wanted to do, because the world kind of came after him. And so, you know, I don't, I think there's the text does one thing and then he adds the prologue to kind of soften what it's supposed to, supposed to do. And so it really is difficult to know where to land on that aspect of it. Uh, I think that personally, I think 
the way he <clears throat> I think he writes I think he loves the character of Dorian. Yeah. I and think so, so too. when you get to the end, he sees it as a tragedy. And the this the tone, the the mode that he writes the final scenes in, it's like feels kind of like a Shakespearean tragedy in some ways. Like he's doing his best, you know, Juliet killing herself or Cleopatra or like I think he's kind of in a way paying homage to those those scenes and other great works of literature. Um but because he kind of writes that prologue, it kind of alters it, it, it gives you more options for how to read it, which in a way might be what makes it last longer, which has made it something that's very teachable and we'll keep coming back to. Um, and maybe every author should write a thesis that kind of, or a prologue that says the opposite of what the book seems to say, because it would create some interesting, uh, interesting conflict in the reader, which can't help but leave. So if you ever write a novel, Tim, or next time you write a play, just have a prologue come out that says the opposite of what the intention of the play is. And by the end of it, they're going to be like, well, hold on a second. And then yeah. you, then it's just going to live with the, 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 the audience member that much longer. Yeah, it's a good strategy. Hey, there's a funny question here from Matt. I, sorry, Matt, I don't mean to say it's funny, but you did phrase it in a funny way. Matt says, the haggard woman at the opium den in chapter 16, who says, why, man, it's nigh on 18 years since Prince, Prince Charming made me what I am. Has to be Sybil Vane's ghost, right? She appears, knows his face and nickname, and then vanishes. And then Matt says, come at me, bro. I'll fight you on this one. And then he puts a oh, smiley man. face in. So I didn't even think about that. He's got to be right. How did we not? I, I didn't even think. I did not see that. I think I he's feel right like I thought for sure. Did you guys pick up on that before Matt's observation? I, I mean, want to say no, but I did. You did? Did you mention it on the podcast? I don't think we talked no. about it. Oh. Unless it, unless it was when I was in here. But my favorite part is that Matt's like, he gives this so this thesis that's like pretty defendable. And then he's like, come at me, bro. I'll fight you. And then has a smiley face. It's like, it's both like aggressive, but it's then also there's a smile. It's an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's like, I want to fight you about it, but also, can I still be Tim's friend? So that on the podcast, <laughs> Tim will go, hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. That's a great um, observation. Surely, surely that was her ghost. Don't call him or Shirley. It's in his, or it's in his head. Yeah, I mean, I think the Matt's idea head. is... You mean it's in Matt's head. Head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yeah, sorry, Matt. It's either a real character who is her ghost or he sees her ghost. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. I, I think it's a projection from his own conscience demented psyche okay we have a few yeah. questions here about basil i know i keep saying it wrong but you know i'm gonna do my best here um heidi you mentioned that you do do you have a negative view of him an unsympathetic view of him so here's one from deb do you think that basil is guilty in contributing to dorian's narcissism by painting him in scenes throughout history this was mentioned to Basil's initial uh, in, in Basil's in Basil's initial confession to Lord Henry. It seems as though Basil was literally teaching Dorian to see himself at the center of everything. Although I don't think that was his intention. I think Basil was just acting out of idolatry and disordered loves, and Dorian thought, "Oh, I'm worthy of worship. Then let's go." Then Lord Henry got to, got a hold of him and said that it wouldn't last, and that was just too difficult to be born. Heidi, do you want to address this? Yeah. So. First, I want to clarify, I think Basil is the only one who ends up redeemed in the story. But I think that his contribution to Dorian's downward trajectory is profound. Um, and I think that's exactly what happens in that comment. It's because he, he, Dorian is an idol. He worships him for his beauty. 
And, and he, I, yes. So that comment I think is right on. Um, and I think that, hold on. What was the first question? David, can you mind Do you think that Basil it? is guilty in contributing to Dorian's narcissism? Yes. And then absolutely, she basically says, Lord Henry, then Lord, then Lord Henry gets a hold of him and mm-hmm. says that it wouldn't last and that's just too, too difficult for him to be born. Yes, I think that's true. I also think that there is a latent self-worship within uh, Dorian that is activated by the, and aggravated by these men. And it would have been there whether they got to him or not. But I think their influence is what sparks or catalyzes his downfall. And then I think Dorian takes it from there. So Tim, to continue this conversation, I'm going to ask read this next question from Michelle, who says, in chapter 14, Dorian blames Basil for the degradation of his life. Quote, whatever my life is, he had more to do with the making or the marring of it than poor Harry has had. He may not have intended it. The result was the same, end quote. So her question is twofold. Which sin is most culpable for Dorian's life? Basil's, Basil's idolatry, Harry's manipulation, or Dorian's own narcissism and self-indulgence? Tim, do you have, what's your take on that? The third. So you of think, those three, which I is totally the, which agree. is like, yeah, the third. I mean, I think, I think that, kind that of, quote there kind of proves it, honestly. That mm-hmm. it's the third option. Yeah. 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 I mean, Dorian's like Influence response. Is not responsibility. Yeah, exactly. My parents made me do it. Or, I mean, like we kind of like, learn to get over this hopefully as kids like my sister pushed me and that's why I hit her with the frying pan you know that's like that's not sure she might have pushed you but you're still responsible for your own actions I think it's the third option just dealt with this in my home this morning frying pan wasn't quite a frying pan but there was you know I've got three boys at varying stages of maturity uh, maturity and I you know, I'm always telling Coulter, like your seven-year-old brother, yeah, he does things wrong sometimes, but you also have, we have, we, we you have more responsibility because you're more mature. So the way you respond has to be different than the way he responds. Anyway. Um, okay, How'd that so go? The, parenting corner. Parenting um, corner. We should have we should some have parenting, parenting corner, corner music. <laughs> parenting corner. Uh, it parenting went, corner. there was, there, um, it ended up sweaty. I'll just say that. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Me neither. What that a great, great answer. What a great um, answer. I'm just going to leave it there. It ended up with lots of sweat. Um I don't know what that means, but I I I'd grant it to you. It's hot outside is what it means. Yeah. Um what might uh Michelle then continues, what might Wildy Wild Wildy. I just know this guy named last name's Wildy. That's so why did my brain is just having trouble. What might Wild be trying to say about the implications on one's own sin or on on other souls? In chapter three, Harry says about influence to project one's soul into some gracious form. And then it and Basil says of the portrait in chapter one, I am afraid I have shown it in the secret of my own soul. And then in chapter 20, as Dorian laments his own sin, he also feels regret that, quote, he had been an evil influence to others. And that of the lives that had crossed its own, it had been the fairest and the most full of promise that he had brought to shame, end quote. So is there a reading in which Basil and Harry's souls are also reflected in the canvas? Heidi, it's your turn. Yeah, I I like that question. Um, And I think, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward morality tale, in my opinion. And so to me, the answer is we should influence 
people for good and not for evil or selfish or idolatrous purposes. That seems to me pretty straightforward within the text. Um, and then what's the second half of the question at the end? That was really good. Well, is there a reading in which Basil and Basil yeah. and Harry's souls are also reflected in the canvas? I think that's, I like that a lot. I think that's certainly true for Basil. Um, he, he, he even says multiple times in the first scene and then later in the big turning point with, um, when he gets murdered, right before he gets murdered, he says that the reason he didn't want to exhibit the painting is because there was too much of himself in it. He was afraid that other people would be able to see his idolatry of Dorian in this painting. And I think he, that's true. That's, and I, I think that's why I hold Basil very responsible for what happened to Dorian is because he created the division. Um, he externalized Dorian's beauty and put it into a work of art uh, and that art then kind of is the magnet, not only for Dorian's sins, but also for Basil's idolatry. And 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 so I think that the painting is kind of this mingled union of of those uh, those two streams of degradation in both of their lives. The difference between Dorian and Basil is is obvious, and that's that. Dorian does not repent and turn from his his ways, and and Basil does, and it causes his death. But he's I'd still rather be Basil than Dorian. Agreed. Basil gets redeemed. He does, and so my my I'm not condemning Basil. I just I I hold him as responsible as Lord Henry, and I know a lot of readers don't. So, but I think he's the best off in the whole book. Tim, you want to add anything else, or should I go to the next question? No, no, I, I'm. So Emily, I endorse what Heidi said. Excuse me. <laughs> no, that's good. Emily has two theories that she puts out here, and I'm going to read this first theory at least. So she says, and I'm going to re- I'm going to read her. It'll t- it'll uh, just bear with me for a second. What if Basil and his painting? did not propel Dorian towards evil? What if Basil's idolatry is a sort of red herring, an evil that Dorian exploits as a scapegoat for his own evil? I reread all the Basil passages, and I noticed that the book's criticism of Basil chiefly comes from the words and mind of Dorian. I don't think we're supposed to take this viewpoint as true. I think Dorian, the self-deceived narcissist, hates the light that Basil constantly throws on his own darkness, so much so, so that they can no longer be friends. Basil can't help but reveal Dorian's and, Dor- and Dorian can't stand it. He maligns Basil. He blames Basil. He kills Basil. So disclaimer, Basil's idolatry of Dorian is unhealthy and harmful, but after rereading all the Basil passages, I see Basil be ashamed of, confess, and repent of his idolatry. It is short-lived, ending with the completion of the portrait, and it's accompanied by earnest concern for Dorian's soul. Yes, Basil is accused of loving his art more than his friends, but when put to the test, Basil chooses his friends and their good over his art. Um... She goes on, and I'll let you if you if you're listening, you can go. She's got some good defenses here, um, some interesting stuff. But I would love to talk um, more about this, Tim. Did you, what do you think of this? This idea that Basil's idolatry is a red herring. I might sound like I'm contradicted. So I agreed with what Heidi said in the last answer, but I think that Heidi and I probably don't see the pernicious influence of Basil the same way. I don't see it as influential. I don't know that I'd go so far as to call it a red herring. It definitely has an influence 
on Dorian, but I think it's less impactful. I just think Dorian shows up in the novel on a kind of scale of negative 10 to positive 10 set at zero. He's a kind of tabula rasa and he shows up relatively innocent, but also, um, what's the word? Anodyne. Is that the right word? Um, he, he just has no substance. And so the only influences we see on him are Henry and Basil. And so, yeah, Basil kind of gets a little bit of the blame, but I, I see it more as a problem of Dorian being set to zero. He just had no, no internal capacity to kind of like differentiate between right and wrong. Or to kind of stand up to Lord Henry and Basil okay. and say, no, I'm going to go my own way. I'm a soldier. So if he didn't have that internal capacity, then should he be sympathized? Should we actually, is he, is he, is he? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Him? Heidi, how would you read that? I don't know. I, I think that the, I think the points that are brought, brought up in this question are absolutely defensible in the text. And I actually think that Oscar Wilde agrees with you. I think that this is how Oscar Wilde sees it. He, and he, he identifies himself in Basil and, um, yeah. and, and I, I He's don't, a- I think that that I'm standing by it, but, I think that the tech, and this is where I get, this is where the book has been a really interesting exercise for me. I think that there are things that Oscar Wilde believes and is written into the book that I just think the book transcends even the author's point of view. And that the book itself tells the truth more than Oscar Wilde would. Like, I think that there's things that are in the book that Oscar Wilde himself can't escape because he's trying to tell the truth about the nature of the world and he succeeds. But I think that he doesn't even, I think the book is bigger than Oscar Wilde and the author's intent. Um, and you I just think state I state what those things are just for the sake of, for example, and Basil is a great example of this. Like, I think idolatry is always um, a, like, cannot be, the, the, it's pernicious. And, and it's, Basil created the thing that is Oscar, that is Dorian's division of soul. And so to not hold him responsible for that, when he even says that he did that out of idolatry, like I understand that Basil is sympathetic, but the thing he did is what causes, is literally and objectively what causes the division of self that is Dorian soul. Okay, so then there's the second part to her question here. She says, so I'm going to read the quote that she gives and then I'll read her theory. In chapter 19, Henry says what Wilde says in his preface, quote, you and I, Dorian, are what we are and and will be what we will be. The books that the world calls immoral are books that show the world its own shame. That is all, end quote. So then she says, what if Wilde's point is that the picture is not moral or immoral. The picture merely reflects what is true. Dorian is beautiful. So how Dorian responds to the picture springs from his own soul. So you would disagree with that then? 
I no, I actually think Oscar Wilde would agree with that. I think that is if her point is this is what Oscar Wilde thinks. I'm like, yeah, I do. I think that's exactly what Oscar Wilde thinks. I think that's a brilliant analysis of what the book is trying to say. I just think the book ends up saying something different from what it's trying to say. Because so you would say that the painting does have is it's not it is not moral or immoral. You wouldn't agree with that. You'd say that there is a moral component to the image yes. to the created thing itself because of the mm-hmm. intention because of the idolatry of the creator yes that's right okay got it okay but i think that her i think that that perspective is entirely defensible and probably what oscar wilde was trying to say and so i'm like great i think that's brilliant right okay tim do you want to add anything um this is a whole big subject because right. i mean I, if I, let's just do a little thought experiment. If mm-hmm. I um, put in front of my friends uh, sugar-laden brownies, let's say I do it and David's trying to lose weight because, you know, he's... he's Which you should, David. Yeah, you really need to, to trim it. down. But David's trying to like... That, felt, that feels like you're just being mean the other way now. <laughs> <laughs> let's imagine David's trying to lose weight. I make brownies. I put them in front of him with the express intention of like tempting him to eat these brownies. I am most definitely morally culpable. Um, and it's an it's a sin. It would be a sin on my part to tempt David in that way. But is there something in the brownies themselves? No. I mean, they're delicious. They have sugar. But is there something morally in the brownies themselves? I would say no. And I think that I would follow, I would use that same analogy about the painting. I That's would say, is, is there something about the painting itself that is morally non-neutral, that is causing, you know, Dorian's downfall? I don't think so. But there is no doubt that there is something prideful in basil's creation of the painting that that seems to affect dorian in some way but i almost think it's more i think it's more basil's praise of dorian than it is the painting so i think that one of the things that actually would clarify this point in some ways is if we had like a we had more detail on the sort of mechanism of magic that allows the painting to become swapped with his soul because he doesn't get into that and he basically is just because he he offers this prayer to the universe that he would not grow old like i think there is something it suggests a, a a degree of evil or something some kind of Something spiritual. Um, I don't. This is the Metachlorian. This is the Metachlorian theory of a picture of Dorian Gray. Is what you're putting out. Like in the first three Star Wars, the Force this is, is this is is something that we choose to participate in. Luke is either going to heed the wisdom of Obi-Wan and step into the force, give himself over to the force and thus be enlightened. And then the Metachlorian theory comes up in the second three movies. And it's like, that's the dumbest thing in the world. The Metachlorian theory like turns every Star Wars fan off because the force is this participatory, non-material 
like mode of being. And then you kind of like make it into a science experiment. Like if you like have enough Kool-Aid with metachlorians in it, you're going to like be at one with the force. And I was like, no, this is crap. There's no way this is not true. I I think that like, if we knew how the magic worked, I kind of think it would diminish the book because the thing that we see is Dorian volitionally and willfully wanting something that's wrong. Yeah, I'm a little torn on whether I think it would diminish the book. I probably would, but I guess what I'm saying is that had he, if we offered more of like this sense of the universe in which the story is operating, like this sort of metaphysical, spiritual, magical sense of that, it would allow us to assess whether the painting has some sort of inherent evil within it. Without oh, he, oh, oh, because, I see, I see. Because in, because we have so little about that, but like, the, what is there something that is that does this painting have in some way the capacity to swap souls with him such that it could you could say that it's evil? Maybe I don't. That's like that's the thing where I'm saying if it's hard to assess the question for me without getting into that. I'm not saying that dramatically it would be better for us to know, but it might allow us to assess that question better because. Yeah. I mean, there's little, the book has all these like, you know, or is it simply that he, um, is it all in his head? That's another question you could, you can. No. So to me, the question is not whether or not the painting is intrinsically evil. The point to me is that the painting divides Dorian. The painting makes it so that Dorian himself, his flesh does not reflect the reality of his life. And therefore, his he is less than human, and and is robbed of the 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 accountability that body would have on his actions, and and that division is only possible because Basil worshipped the beauty instead of knowing and loving Dorian the person. And that to me means that the question to me is not about the painting. It's about the impact of that and the fact that Dorian is robbed because of Basil and Lord Henry and his own narcissism from being a whole person. And that's evil. Um, all right. I'm sorry. Let's just kind of shift gears here. I know it's Q&A awkward, but just for the sake of time. So sorry, Heidi. Um, no, you're fine. Here's one from... Um, someone whose Substack name is The Commonplace Catholic, and they write a Substack called The Commonplace Catholic. So that sounds interesting. Um, This book and the discussions around it have made me think a lot about questions of censorship and discernment when it comes to reading. Dorian Gray reads the French book from Lord Henry that clearly has a negative effect on him. The picture of Dorian Gray itself has to be had to be carefully edited in order to make it past the censors of the time. And you guys discussed how a younger reader could misread the book, at least initially, and think that Lord Henry is charmingly or truly insightful and Dorian's hedonism is attractive. So my question is, how do you discern what books you read? As a person of faith, how do you know if and when books' good qualities are outweighed by content that might be harmful in the way Dorian's reading harmed him? Are there ever any books that are totally off the table for a person trying to live a moral life? And finally, when it comes to guiding younger readers in their consumption of books and really all media, who has the rights, beside the obvious answer, of parents to make decisions for them? Tim, you want to take this one first? You have a new a new child, so I wanted to just throw this yeah. to you uh, as someone who is the youngest child of the three of us. Um, my daughter will not be reading Ayn Rand. There, I just I got it over with. I did it. <laughs> 
That was like a T. We, we had to make one reference. You. We knew yep. that it was like bingo. When yep. she grows up and rebels, she's going to read the Fountainhead. <laughs> she's a total she's Fountainhead. Gonna, she's going to hear this when she's like seventeen. Girl. And be like, that's going to be what she does to rebel like, against you. Oh my Dagny gosh! Taggart. Yeah, yeah. Dagny Taggart. She's wearing Dagny Taggart swag. Oh my gosh! My worst nightmare. Who is John Galt on the back of her car? <laughs> With like is so, is like uh, big and italicized. Who is John Galt? Who is John Galt? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is my worst nightmare. I think the older you get, the more that you it becomes easy to kind of censor for yourself the stuff that you shouldn't be reading. Like, I have. I'm going to out myself. I think The Stranger by Albert Camus is a really brilliant book, and I think in my really dark moments, I'm kind of like. The Stranger by Albert Camus is kind of cool. That's actually a cool way to live your life. And I don't believe that, but that's my that's like that's my Tim weakness. Just goes What's and that? stabs someone on the beach. <laughs> right. <laughs> existential darkness of Right. Life. Listening to the cure in my headphones and I just attack someone randomly. It's not that, but it's the well, sort it's just of the 80s um, right there. It's the it's the deep inward turn. Yes. That's what it is. It's like that's more um, exciting than like the murder of a random stranger is. <laughs> I'm starting to follow that up. Like, although that's kind of interesting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. um, so I, I think, and I think you know, like parents probably know what are the particular weaknesses of their kid, and they probably try to like keep those sorts of books away, along with just like straight up stuff that nobody that they shouldn't be reading at a young age. So that's a weak answer to a to a um a sophisticated question. It's a weak answer. Heidi's got something better for us. Heidi? I don't know if I do. I I think that this is a particularly um relevant question coming from the commonplace Catholic, right? Because the Catholic Church takes upon itself that responsibility. There are books that are forbidden. There are there's content that um that's on a censored list, right? And and it the justification for that is be, for the good of the soul, for the good of the faithful, right? And um and Oscar Wilde has been censored and here for <laughs> for reason and here we are reading and defending it um as people of faith and so i think that that question is enduringly relevant and we're not trying to dodge it i'm not trying to dodge it when i say i don't know i honestly don't know um i'm a very thoughtful involved parent and so i have uh books and content like media content that that i deny my kids right and I have, it's less now since they're teenagers i have a son who's almost an adult but um there's still things I wish I could. I have this conversation with my husband all the time because my husband is like, this is a little glimpse into this is like inside baseball and Heidi White's Here's life. the dynamic. Like, right? My husband's <laughs> like, he's almost a man. You can't stop him anymore. And we ought not. It's better if he learns those things within the boundaries of our home so that we can talk about it. Whereas me, as the mom, it's like, I like, let's limit this. Let's, because this stuff has so much potential to be damaging to the soul. And who's right? I don't know. I don't know. I truly, like, I'm like Socrates. All I know is that I do not know. Um, and so that is the best and completely 
most inadequate answer I could possibly give. <laughs> I've mentioned before that I have a, a group of, I think I've mentioned on this show, maybe it was on the movie pods. I've got um, a group of friends from church where we're basically, oh, we all go to church together. Um, and there's about 10 or 12 of us ranging in age between like 23 and 43. And we have a group called Sunday Streamers. And most Sundays or often on Sunday evening, we'll get together and watch movies. And we have this chat on, on I don't know, one of those one of those WhatsApp type apps. Signal, I guess, is ours. And we um we have a chat called Sunday Streamers. And on there, we talk a lot about movies and we post movie trailers and we're talking about, we like lists of movies. And then we talk about restaurants and stuff, you know, all that. But one of the things we talk about a lot is what, like, is it okay to watch this, you think? Or where do you draw the line? That's kind of the question we're always asking each other. And one of the things that I've noticed is how dramatically that can differ from person to person. And these are all like God-fearing men who are, you know, doing, you know, being very like attempting to be very um, discerning. And the reality is there are some things that we all will say that's just bad for us. Like there, there are a handful of things that we all are like, yep, those are, none of us should be watching this, this, this thing. Like that's just, it's harmful to us. And then there are some things that are half the group would say, oh, I could never watch that. And then the other half says, oh, I've never even like that, that kind of thing doesn't, I don't think twice about that because it doesn't seem to like stick in my head, you know, whereas there's something else that seems pretty harmless to other guys in the group, but to, then to other people, it's like, oh, that's gonna that would stick with me forever. There'd be no way for me to cast that out. So then, part of the the problem is that you you don't know that <laughs> until you know it, right? So that's where it, you know it helps to have people who you can, who are mentors, right? Who can who have who are wiser and can point you in the right direction and answer questions like that. And I people who have who are older, and that's also why I think the canon really matters because I think part of the canon. Part of the discussion about the canon is a discussion of questions of morality uh, and the kinds of things that everybody that universally should be um, uh, approached and experienced and discussed. Um, like the Iliad and the Odyssey have difficult things, but everybody should read them, I would say, probably. Um, right. And so that's part of the con, like, that's why we have these conversations with our kids, though, um, and why the culture needs to have these conversations. Because if, if you don't like we kind of live in a culture that doesn't even care about the conversation, doesn't even care about the question. And so we have to have these conversations together. Um, but having them is also proof that like that that's like a step further than what most of the people that are creating these things actually think about. And it's like a step, it might be even be a step further than what Oscar Wilde would want us to do. I don't know. I have to think about that. more. I think that's right. Well, and I think there are a couple of pretty solid like rules of them, and especially in speaking about the canon, like, stories in which the redemption is sufficient to the darkness or the trajectory mm -hmm. of justice is sufficient to the moral law broken. For example, Shakespeare's tragedy. There's not a, uh, a there's not a reconciliation commiserate with the, the brokenness in a tragedy. However, there is a clear sense of hope uh, that that now with the with the stage littered with dead bodies, that there's something to carry forward, right? Um, and and so I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, I have noticed that the older I get, the more I I am sensitive to wickedness or darkness in stories, mm -hmm. like things that I, never bother me in my twenties bother me more in my forties. 
I don't know what that is. I hope it's because I'm becoming more like the princess and the pea, which is actually supposed to be a good fairy tale. Um, <laughs> um, I, I hope it's because my, uh, I hate wickedness more than I did then. I hope that's right. Um, and love the good more than I did then. Um, but I think that that is a pretty, and, and if there's a clear delineation and understanding of good and evil within a story, I think this story can bear a harder weight of darkness um, than one that has more of a nihilistic worldview that says that um, that seems to say there is no difference between yeah. right or wrong. There is only power. I think those two things: is there a redemption commiserate with the with the fall in the story, um, and is there a proper and a, a clear understanding of meaning and the difference between good and evil? Um, then I think that stories that have those things can 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 have harder the more darker content that are um that our souls can handle better than if it has it's more nihilistic yeah what my kid my kids are still really young mm -hmm. so we're being way more like exactly black and white about the kinds of things that they experience but as they get older now take what i'm about to say with a grain of salt but part of me is going to be way more concerned if my kids are like 18 to 25 and they are consuming without discernment content that is like deeply nihilistic than mm -hmm. if they're consuming content that is like super violent and has bad language Agreed. in it. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't want them like they have to be, they have to use their own judgment about that other stuff, but I'll be more concerned if they're like just hook, line and sinker falling into art that's pure nihilism and not not being able to like see it for what it is because i yeah. think that if they're if they have been fallen hook line and sinker for nihilism then they're not going to be able to look at something like really bad language or really bad violence or even sexual content and be able to turn be able to idea it for what it is and turn away from it if they have basically said that the world is nihilistic and they have fallen for like the fight club worldview then they're not going to be able to, they're not going to look at those things and say, those are evil things. But if they have, if they have, if they love first things that are true, good and beautiful and identify nihilism for what it is, then they're going to have the ability to see things in the world that fall into that category and they're going to be able to project them. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, but that's my opinion right now. I realize my kids are young and, but from that that's my perspective right now. And they're not that think. young. They're right in the middle of their childhood and culture's almost a teenager. And I think you're really on to something. Like we're and and I think to do that, we have to be willing to let them suffer through harder stories when they're younger. And I think that's really true. They have to be able to um encounter darkness within a context of a meaningful world, which is why we're continuing why uh, in my work, I'm like, have them read fairy tales, have them read Lord of the Rings, right? Have them read these stories that have monsters and villains that cost the world something, the world of the story something, and then have them have those monsters defeated by by the good um, and let them feel the weight of that when they're younger so that when they encounter the nihilism, they're, they're already ready, like primed to see that. Um, that good can conquer evil. And I think that's really important. I think we have to be doing that for our kids. Um, so, yeah, but I, 
So to your point, I'm less concerned about darkness in stories that have a compelling redemption in them. At that point, I'm like, great. Sam, do you have anything else you want to add? No. Have you had this conversation with your, uh, with your daughter yet? Yeah, we're pretty deep into it. Yeah. Is she, what's the feedback you're getting from her? Um, Daddy can kill all the monsters. That's the feedback you're getting. That's exactly what I'm getting. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. There you go. I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm like ready for that phase to start. Yeah. That, that's the, and we're getting the part pretty, where you kill the monsters. There. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that's why you're I told you guys she started laughing. No, of course she did. She started laughing. Perfect. She's what full is, of joy. Were you telling a joke or what? I mean, what? No, 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 no. I just like, I'm doing like, I'm making funny sounds yeah. and funny faces and she just loves it. <laughs> yeah, those are the best. That's the sweetest. They're the best. Yeah, it was great when Lydia started doing that because the boys didn't laugh for years. Um, they didn't laugh for years. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, oh. <laughs> um, let's wrap it up here. Um, okay, did you guys see this question about personality in Oscar Wilde's time? No. Let me ask it quickly because it, it's a good one, and you can offer a quick Got it. a quick answer. So Sharon asks, how did Oscar Wilde and his contemporaries define personality? In the first chapter, Basil says he was immediately attracted to Dorian's personality even before meeting him. And Basil, sorry. This is repeated elsewhere with other people. It seems that personality, the combination of characteristics or qualities that form an individual's distinctive character and physical appearance are conflated. This seems similar to the references of physiognomy and Jane, and Jane Eyre. This Hmm. continues as we see evidence of Dorian's corrupted soul in the face of the portrait. It seems hard to believe that people would truly believe that one's character is necessarily reflected in their physical characteristics. Haven't we all known ugly people with beautiful souls in the opposite? Some celebrities, for example. It seems to me that the body, especially as we age, is where beauty and goodness often go in opposite directions. Not sure what my question is. Maybe did did anyone or, or does anyone really believe that one's character and personality can be assessed by one's physical attribute? Um... That question shifted a little bit there. Um, do we have any thoughts? Like, do you guys know anything about the era and its definition of personality? I mean, as Heidi pointed out, this Freud is be- is coming into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that uh, some of that's artificial in the sense that Oscar Wilde is making a point that he's imposing on the story that doesn't necessarily reflect the cultural landscape at large. You're right. Um, uh, but I think that um, that this comment is really onto something when it talks about the conflating of personality with beauty. I think that's right. Um, I, I guess maybe a little. I'm, I'm maybe more sympathetic to it than the comment than than the comment seems to be because I, I think most of the people that I know of very great character look beautiful to me. Like, um, even if. Um, they just have a beauty to them that is reflected in their physical appearance. Do you think Henry could have seen that? Could see that? What do you mean? Like, could Henry in this story see someone who, to use her thing, isn't oh, has has an, is internally beautiful? Could he see that? No, because he doesn't have the eyes to see that. Um, but I, I, I think if I accept the question as it is like i think that the comment is right that there's this divorce um that the that the thing that happens to dorian is that his beauty is divorced from his moral attributes 
and but other people can't see it. They don't have the eyes to see it. Um, and that's that's the curse of the painting is that then Dorian looks beautiful. And so therefore, ergo, he looks good to people. Mm. And that's the problem of Dorian, or that's the tragic, that's what causes the tragic fall. There's a quote from Abraham Lincoln that I think it's, by the time you're 40, you have the face that you deserve. I I read that as your personality kind of puts shape into your into your face. And if you're always an angry person, it's going to take a toll in that direction. If you're a happy person, a benevolent person, you're it's going to shape your face that way. I kind of believe that also. I think that mm-hmm. maybe Heidi were suggesting something like that. Yeah. Um I I don't know what what um Oscar Wilde thought about physiognomy or Abraham Lincoln for that <laughs> matter. Um yeah. Yeah. So but in a way that regardless the book does seem to explore right. the notion. Um it's like a kind of kind of what's happening. Do you think that with uh, modern life expectancies that it's really 45 or 50 now? Or like, how should we, can we adjust that for inflation? Like, do I have a couple of years or am I like a whatever, like I'm, I'm going to be 40 in like four years. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. Like how long does it really take? Um, your earned you face a- is looming. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you guys are settled in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got what I've got. Uh, <laughs> Tim looks great. Yep. Silver Fox. Um, okay, so let's wrap this up. Um, any final thoughts from anyone else? No. There's been so many. There's not a possible sure. one to choose. This is a thought-provoking book. It is indeed. It was nice to be back on the podcast. And I'm going to stick around for one more. For, for we another, talk about the next book. Yeah, but you're making that say like you're never going to come back. No, 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 no. I just, I didn't know if you wanted to like talk about what the next book was. The next book is Ivan Denisovich, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And Tim's going to be around for that. And then after that, Sean will be back for um, The Moving Toy Shop. Um, We're going to announce soon what the bonus book is, but we're still, um, you know, the subscriber exclusive book is the next one, but we're still going through that hideous strength to check out the last couple episodes on that. Um, We will do the uh, Ivan Denisovich, we're going to do as two, we're going to divide that right in half. And then we're going to do the Q&A. So three total episodes. So divide it right in half. Um, and I'll post the exact point in the book, but just roughly you go to the half, you'll be fine. I think that's about it as far as news. You go to this conference. Go see Tim and Heidi in Atlanta. Um, check out circeinstitute.org slash events. Got the bonus shows, the daily poems, going strong-ish. We go. We do it most days. Um, uh, it's hard one. It's hard to do a podcast every day, um, but there's lots of great poems on there. Uh, Sean's doing yeoman's work, keeping it going too. Uh, last month, I was pretty out of it. So, um, and Heidi, you're Same. helping out too. Thanks. So, some, but <clears throat> Sean is Sean is carrying the He's load right now. I got to get my head in that game. <laughs> you can cut that, Logan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, she said it publicly. Don't cut it. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, there's lots of great content out there. Thanks to everyone for sending in questions and uh, thanks for all the conversation on the Facebook group and over on the Substack as well. So um, that's about it. But Heidi, Tim, it's great to have you back. It's great to do these conversations. It really is uh, one of the highlights of my week. So I just want to say that. So thanks, guys. Thanks, David. For Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.